I tried to be the person that people wanted to row with. So when we showed up and our names were written on the board and what our combinations were for the day, I would rather people be excited about how the row could go with me instead of being disappointed before we even step foot in the boat because you can feel that if someone has the attitude or the, or the negative energy surrounding them. The human experience is the greatest project any of us will undertake, yet it's often the one we spend the least amount of time working on. My name is Matt Johnston. I'm a self-professed personal development junkie, a retired pro golfer, and I now work for an organization that provides employee and health benefits to hundreds of thousands of people. It should be common sense to realize that what happens at work is what people bring home and what happens at home comes to them to work, but that's too often ignored. That's why each week I hope to uncover a little more around what it means to be a human working and living in the 21st century. We'll be learning from experts, having conversations and getting insights into all those things that fall at the intersection of life and work, emotional and physical health, skills and money, all of the relationships we navigate each day, and of course, the purpose and meaning we all desire. This is The Human Assignment. Welcome back or welcome to the Human Assignment Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us on this journey. Our goal uh, at the Human Assignment, this startup project that we're working on, is to examine all those things at the intersection of work and life. We talk to experts, we talk to folks with interesting experiences, those with domain expertise. And today I'm thrilled to share a conversation that I had with a longtime friend of mine, Olympian Janine Stevens. Janine is a former member of Canada's national rowing team. She won a silver medal at the 2012 Olympics as part of the women's eights rowing team. And in more recent years, Janine has become a coach and she's had tremendous success as a coach to no surprise, as you'll hear in this podcast, um, has been, um, has been, uh, awarded for, for her dedication to the sport in 2019, received what I think is, is one of the highest honors, uh, in Canadian rowing, the Can- Canada's president's award for her dedication to the sport of rowing. I really enjoyed this conversation with Janine. I actually had a few conversations with Janine uh, before I actually recorded the podcast in full disclosure. Our first chat was was an amazing couple hours. I, I had a, some technical difficulty which she was very patient with me through and then uh, realized at the end of what was a phenomenal interview, um, I, I was fumbling my way through as I usually do, but she was phenomenal. I forgot to press uh, record. So in the, uh, in the, in the true spirit of the, the human assignment, uh, and, uh, uh, the messiness and uh, ups and downs of it all, I, uh, I had to go back to Janine with my tail between my legs and she was very gracious to, to spend another couple hours with me. So I reached out to Janine because I'd heard her on another podcast, Heroes in Our Midst, run by a couple friends of ours. And it occurred to me, I, I've known Janine my whole life and, but listening to her in this interview, it really occurred to me what an amazing, influence Janine is on any environment that she's in, whether it's her as a team member um, in the world of sports, as a community member, uh, which, you know, I I typically get to see her through um, as a coach. She's one of those people that 
I think draws the best out of others. You're you're going to have a better day when you run into Janine, um, whether it's at a Christmas party or it, whether it's um, you know in the gym or you know as a, as a teammate. And so I wanted to dig into uh, Janine's story to better understand her path and how she got to where she 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 got to. And selfishly, I got to ask some of the questions that I've uh, that I've always wanted to ask Janine. And I think what comes through in this podcast is uh, for sure Janine's infectious attitude. And it's something that that I'm sure comes naturally to her uh, to a certain degree, but she works at it. The word attitude comes up over and over and over again in this uh, in this in this conversation. In in the in the few conversations I had, the one I recorded and 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 didn't record. And Janine is one of those people that really puts a conscious effort on trying to draw the best out of other people. So I think whether you're a parent, whether you're a leader of a team, whether you're a community member, I think there's there's a lot to learn from from what Janine says, but also just her presence. So I'm I'm thrilled to share this conversation I had with my my longtime friend and uh, someone that I certainly look up to, Janine Stevens. Janine, welcome back to the podcast. This time we're actually going to record it. Oh my God! Thank you so much for your patience with me and uh, and taking time again to be on as I as I sort of rub my eyes in uh, disbelief. Yeah, no, happy happy to do it again. <laughs> um, well, we had such a great chat last week that uh, I I can't wait to jump back in here and uh, th- like based on on uh, on our previous conversation. There's so many ways that we could start off, but I actually, I think that we should, we could jump right in where we were just talking about offline here. You're an Olympian. You have an Olympic medal. You've been to world championships. You're now a uh, a decorated coach, but I talked to your brother before the interview and, uh, and I think this, we fact checked it here before, but he told me that you didn't get into rowing until 17. And it was because you went to a karate class with his girlfriend is the story I got. So can you tell us how you became a rower to give us a little context? Yeah. So I think his girlfriend at the time definitely had some influence being whatever belt she was. Um, And my dad actually suggested it so I could tackle all the boys who would be coming after me, uh, which is a nice dad thing to say, I think to your daughter. And uh, so I took karate. I went my first class and there was um, uh, one of the moms had stayed to watch her. uh, What was he? Six at the time or something. Her six year old son was in the same class as me. And so at the end of the class, the oddest question ever was what sport do you play out of the blue? Not hello, not you're new, like nothing. Just what sport do you do? And I didn't really know how to answer it because at the time I did anything that St. Mary's offered, depending on the season kind of thing. And so I wasn't really sure my passion was in basketball. So that was kind of the answer that I gave her everything, but maybe basketball. Um, And then she sort of suggested that I try rowing. And that I guess was the summer that I was open to all sorts of things. And so I called the rowing club and went and tried it out. We grew up together. I've I've known you for um, probably my entire life. Yep. (laughs) And you've always been an athlete and into into sport. You're you're about you're a basketball player in high school is what you said, right? It was your main focus. Yeah, my passion lay in basketball. I hope to go on and play at the University of Manitoba. Was my okay. goal. Yep. <laughs> so so going into the summer between grade eleven and twelve, was that when this was? Yeah, exactly. Um, you 
went to to uh, learn how to defend yourself or to fight in karate and uh, um, and ended up in a rowing boat. Yeah, I actually did. I did test, and I I did get a yellow belt. I have never gone to pick up the yellow belt. Uh, I don't physically have it in my possession, but somewhere there is one that belongs to me. And uh, but I never went back to karate, and I pursued rowing. So fast forward, because I know that um, a year later you were packing up your bags to go to the University of Michigan on a, which is was it a year later or two years later? It was two, yeah. Yeah, so I, the year, the summer that I started was the summer of 2000, and the following year was a Canada Summer Games year. The day that she asked me to come and try rowing, I happened to be wearing a Canada Winter Games shirt that a friend had given me, who we both know very well, Andrea Ferguson, and she had got it when she was at the 99 Winter Games for Ringette, and so I was wearing it the summer of 2000. And she, that was sort of what triggered her thought. She saw the Canada Games logo on me, assumed it was, you know, me that had gone and was re- looking to recruit for rowing. So I knew having had a friend who had had a great experience at a Canada Games, knew that that was something I'd be interested in pursuing. And so right away, I had a goal of something to achieve for the next summer. And so it was th- that summer, then the following summer, 2001, was Canada Games in London, Ontario. And then it was after that that I could email some coaches in, at U.S. universities and give them my results from the summer and some statistics of rowing machine testing and height and other stuff that interest them. And so then starting in the fall of 2002, I started at Michigan. I want to dig into your experience and I, the thread that I, that I intend on sort of weaving through here that I'm, I, I'm personally just curious about based on our last conversation is around coaching and leadership and, mm-hmm. you know, what, what you do, but also, you know, drawing from your experience. But I'm just so curious right now as to how you went from this person in a karate class saying, hey, you should row to like somehow signing up. Rowing was something different that I had never experienced. So, I mean, you're running on a basketball court, you're playing a volleyball game. It's, you know, you kind of have your zone. You you have a position, same thing in the rowing boat. You have a a position that where you excel and we'll get to that, but it, there are, it looks so effortless. You watch it off the Olympics and they're just like flying and it just looks easy There's no talk of how incredibly unstable the boats are. Like the balance component is huge in and of itself. Never mind having to move at the exact second that the person in front and behind you is moving. You know, you have to be so in tune with the boat and everything happening around you to make rowing easy. And so for me, every stroke, there was so much to think about. Whether I was thinking, if I was thinking about my hands, and this was like my whole rowing career, if I was thinking about what my hands were doing, And I wasn't thinking enough about the power in my legs. If I was, if I was connecting through my heels, if I was sitting properly on my seat. So every stroke, whether you took a bad one or a good one, there was always something to change for the next stroke. So within that three seconds, there's 30 more things to think about. You have to pick one or two and go with it for kind of the next 10 or 15 strokes. So it was, I would say that as a kid, maybe still my attention span is limited, but when I had so many things to sort of shuffle through and focus on, it just like never got boring or tiresome, even though it looks like we're doing the same thing over and over. The amount of things going on in your head to 
create that stroke is infinite. So you had this target, the Canada Games, the next summer. And I guess the story that I have in my mind is that you just channeled focus for that quote unquote sprint. Yeah, I think like I I was not the kid who started rowing and wanted to go to the Olympics. I remember, so 2000, the Olympics were in September in Sydney. And I remember that the athletes that I had started rowing with, we were away on a training camp and they were super excited to watch the Olympics. They knew the rowers, they knew, you know, they were wanting to watch Derek Porter in the single. And, and I didn't know any of these people. I had just started rowing. I didn't know like who any rowers were. I showed up in 2006 to try out for the national team, having not known who went to the 2004 Olympics that I was rowing with. Like that's how much I didn't look ahead in my rowing career to think that I would ever get somewhere with it. Right. Like I just did a little bit more and tried to get better and tried to get better and tried to feel the stroke more and tried to figure out how I could improve slowly, but surely. And then it was like, Oh, I made the Canada games team. Oh, I'm actually racing three boats at Canada games. And there's only two of us on the team doing that. Oh, Oh, we meddled in two of our three boats. Oh, that's great. Okay. Well, maybe I should try and see if I could go to university. And then when I was looking at universities, I was, you know, going between three or four. I did, I did three trips and Michigan caught my eye because I would go there sort of being one of the slower athletes. And I really had to work to claw my way into the top boat. So I, I had to, I put myself in a position where then I, I had to improve to get better, like to get faster. I wanted to improve. And so it was just like slowly chipping away at these things. Oh, okay. I did that. Okay. Now I, you know, I got a little faster. Oh, well, let's see if I can keep getting faster. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, so it wasn't this long-term goal of like growing up wanting to go to the Olympics. I never, I never thought that was a thing. Never. <laughs> that is so refreshing and to a certain degree, uh, unique in the world of sports, having been in the world of sports, because yeah, we yeah. all sort of you know, uh, it's, it's easy to just get so fixated on the bling of the finish line somewhere. Yeah. But I, I'm just curious if you re recognize also how I think it's unique, the fact that you chose Michigan because it was going to be harder. Like the, the fact that you were coming in as someone who's going to have to claw. Yeah. Yeah. I think like I went on a, on a weekend that they were having testing on the rowing machine. So we do 2000 meter tests, which is the same distance as a race um, at the Olympics or otherwise. And it was sort of being able to watch what these women were capable of. And the fact that they were breaking seven minutes, which I did not ever do in my university career. It wasn't until just before my first Olympics that I ever broke this seven minute mark. And that you know, at university, people were doing this. And I just had, I had not seen that before and thought that was just so incredible. And I just wanted to be a part of a program that would really push me to get better. And I didn't, I mean, it sounds way cooler when you say it now, like, why would you do that? And I didn't think about that at the time. I just kept thinking, I wonder, you know, can I keep getting faster? Or can I keep working harder? Or I want to row with these kids who are better than me so I can get better. But I, yeah, I could have gone to Minnesota and gone in as one of the top athletes on the rowing machine. And I, that just didn't quite appeal to me in my first year. So you, you were one of the best schools in the, in the NCAA 
and uh, and you did claw your way onto the team. And <laughs> so, how did how, like how did how did you do it? It's it's interesting because. I mean, when we show up, we had, I think, seven sort of athletes who were recruited in our first year. And at NCAA has um, a novice rowing program. So what that means is, you know, we spend some time recruiting people who are at Michigan who have never taken a stroke, might not know what rowing is. Um, and they become part of a varsity program, which for lots of people is, an, you know, a dream come true for them, but they didn't quite make it in whatever chosen sport they had previously done. And I would think it's safe to say that all had been athletes prior to showing up. And so we did some recruiting and you would find people who were brand new to the sport. And, you know, it kind of started with like 60 people or 70 people are sort of interested in hearing about it. And then they kind of pare it down to maybe. 20 by the end 20 or 30 and then people sort of slowly drop out when they realize like the load of school plus a varsity sport becomes a bit much and it's the novice program so they're not training as much as the varsity who are athletes who go in knowing that rowing is a huge part of their life and so I was low enough on the varsity team that partway through sort of like mid-November I think it was they moved me down to the novice team um, and I don't know now if they did that because of my attitude and like just being passionate about the sport and loving the training and everything that came along with it to be used as sort of someone to help motivate and excite the new people about the sport, which is odd. What's what I still do now in my job of recruiting for rowing as a coach. Um, or, or, or if it was, I was actually not good enough. I, I don't know the answer to that, but by mid-December, or we were at a training camp in the end of December, early January, sort of like over, it always overlapped New Year's. Um, they, they pulled me aside on that training camp and moved me back up to the varsity program. And then I was in the third boat, which is, you know, eight, eight. There's a first eight, a second eight. So I'm like 17th on the team-ish. And, uh, but in that boat of four, we won big tens that year. And I just, I, of all the races, I will never forget that one. It's so funny how some just stick with you like that. I absolutely remember winning my first big 10 championship. And I mean, a few months prior, I wasn't actually on that at team. So I, I did have to work hard and I did have to, you know, show my drive and my wanting to be there and my work ethic and my attitude and bringing that to all the boats that I was in. And I just, I don't know, I kept going up from there. The last time we talked that I forgot to press record or when we attempted to record a podcast, but I just made you hang out with me for, for a couple hours, you use the word attitude like over and over again, all weekend. I was thinking like, I, I, I need, I need to work on my attitude actually. And I, I'm just like, I'm looking at your, just your, your, your college record. And one of the things that pops out to me is recipient of the 2016 big 10 sportsmanship award, you know, on top of all the, the other um, accomplishments from a, from a purely athletic standpoint. And I just, from knowing you, I'm going to have a better day because I talked to you today. And so I just see this thread, you know, this thread through throughout all, all that you do as part of this, you, as you call it, having a, a good attitude. Yeah, I think that was one of the things I was most proud of finishing at Michigan. My senior year was my sportsmanship award. It was, that was a real honor to get. Why? I, 
just think that, I mean, we have such a big program and for a coach and to recognize just more of the, the, the person and like, I mean, there's the work ethic and there's that, but to me, like the sportsmanship award just means, you know, that you're contributing to the team as a whole, maybe not just on the race course, but overall through the year and whether it's practices or whether it's motivating others, whether it's, you know, picking people up on days that aren't their best, whether it's showing up to practice, ready to work hard and setting that, helping to, I don't know, uh, act in a manner that then motivates others and, and wants, they want to work hard along with you. Um, I just think that all of that stuff goes into sportsmanship. And so to get that, I was, I was shocked and just so appreciative of that when I got it. So I wasn't going to ask this story again because I, I asked you it last time, but it just, it just, it's so, it so perfectly exemplifies what you just said and who you are. When I, I listened to your interview on the Heroes in Our Midst podcast, which is run by, hosted by a couple friends of ours, there was such a, there's just such a great story. We're going to fast forward a bit to when you were uh, as part of the Canadian national team and getting set, I think for your second Olympics. So you have gone down to Florida and from what I understand, this is when you solidified your place in the boat, if you will, right? Of all the team sports, to me, like rowing and synchronized swimming, I can't think about like, you really have to work well as a team, I'm guessing, you know, it just, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't work if someone decides to go in their own direction. Can you tell the story of when you solidified your places in the boat? Yes. So I'll tell you two things before I tell you that story. Number one, I would never have said in my outside voice at the time that this was the day I made the boat, because as soon as you write it down or think it or tell your family or something that you're in the boat, that is the exact moment that someone comes from behind and takes your spot. So as soon as you start to feel complacent or comfortable, like you're gone, which is just that always happens in rowing time and time again, as soon as you feel comfortable, then you stop pushing yourself and then someone passes you. So that's just a, I, I know that now, but on the day I never said it out loud, even though I might've thought it. Well, you you definitely need to fact check any titles I'm giving here. You know, I've created my own narrative in my head and, you know, wrapped a board. Well, that, that is, that is exactly how it happened. And it's, and I will never forget that day, but it's funny that two people have come to me in the past two or three years and mentioned that they also remember that day, which I think is, says even more about it. So we were doing some uh, seat racing, it's called in Florida, and we were doing it with switches. And I remember it was an afternoon practice or whatever. The, the practice before, which I believe was the morning session, people asked if the races or if the session was going to be timed. And so to them, what is the session going to be timed means that there's like a timer at the start and finish. The data is then recorded and it, it matters, right? Like that this is data they're going to use for selection going forward. And so, but what they didn't realize or whatever, I don't know, was that we didn't need to time the data because we were actually doing side-by-side racing. And so I was in one boat and you race like we're start, we're doing side-by-side racing. So we're not time trial where it's one at a time with the clock. You're racing against another boat. And I warmed up 
on the ergometer, like on the rowing machine. I did our regular race warm up. I prepared that this was like a, a race. Like this is the Olympics coming up. This is March and I'm preparing for the Olympics. So I want to put my best foot forward every time we're going to the line. So we're doing side-by-side racing. To me, this is a race and everything's being watched. That's just the reality of training for an Olympics every day, every stroke matters. And so I treated it like it was a huge deal. And, and I, in a boat, that's not the eight when there's a coxswain, that's the person that steers and sits at the front. Um, I was always the voice of the boat. So whether it was a pair with one other person or a four with three other people, I was always the person that did the calling and the talking. So I know everyone's technical strengths, what they need to work on when they fatigue. You know, um, I can, I feel the boat a lot to know what we need to do better as a crew to go faster that we can all work on. And so I treated it like it was the Olympic final. Like I prepared for that. Did you identify yourself at some point in your career as the person that should have that voice? Like how, how does... I think if I could choose it, I was always that person. I, you know, it, it's kind of like you have a bit more control in that spot when you're doing that. And I, even like, you know, in high school on the basketball court, if we were in a tight game, I didn't want to be sitting on the bench because I have no control on the bench. I always wanted to be on the court in those last, what, minute and a half, two minutes, 30 seconds, whatever. If it's a tight game, like I want to be there because I, I can control what happens if I'm on the court or if I'm in the boat and I'm doing the talking, I can then, I have some control of how it plays out. Right. So that role was always my thing. I, there's other people who set a great stroke rate and are really good at that. And I will happily get in the boat and follow them. And we talk about what to fix and all that. But so we like, so in this moment, I'm calling all these races, I'm yelling and treating it like it's, exactly that a race and so we finished the first race my boat wins we switch one person we another race switch one person my boat wins again third race uh we switch a person which might have been me actually and then the last race i'm now with the the fourth person who has not won a single race so now we're switching our stroke seat was the last one and she has lost all three races so my first thought is okay, she's going to be feeling pretty down. This might not go so well. And my second thought was, what can I do to put her in a position that she wants, like that she's with me and we're going to go and win this race together, which is exactly what happened. So on this one day, I was the only person in all the boats who had won all four of those, all four of the races. And after that day, I was never singled out in a race again I was sort of I mean you could say solidified my seat in the boat which I can say now because it did and other people noticed it too but at the time I was like definitely doing internal fist pumps and feeling good about how I had attacked the workout but I didn't call home and say I think I just I think we're going to the Olympics I love that story I love I love it for a couple reasons I love it that it was the workout that others thought, well, maybe I don't have to take it as seriously today. And, and you doubled down. Yeah. (laughs) So I love that. And, uh, but of course, just the fact that it potentially shows that it's, it's more than physical skill sets that it takes to, in your case, move a boat quickly, which I think is a great analogy. 
um, you ended up winning a silver medal at, at this, mm-hmm. this particular Olympics. How, how long is the, what is the length of the race? Like what, what was your finishing time? I should know the answer to this off the top of my head. Uh, six, six, 6.17, I think we were. I think the Americans were slightly faster or 6.14, 6.17, something like that. So just over six minutes. Mm-hmm. The reason why I asked that, first of all, it's unbelievable. You've, you, you are a, you're an Olympic uh, medalist. But I, I, I think that what we forget is that, uh, you know, we see you on the, we see the pictures of, you know, you on the dock with the, in the, uh, you know, the sun looks like it's shining, uh, you know, it's uh, holding the, the medal and it just seems amazing. But you train for four years and obviously have milestones along the way. Yeah for a six minute race and, and you have a team of 16, eight end up in a boat. Like one, if you could paint the picture of, of the intensity of that, you're not, uh, you're not getting paid an NHL salary along the way to do this. Um, amateur means for the love of the sport. So paint a picture of the, of the environment that you're training in. And then my second question, I always, always like to stack about five of them together to make it really difficult. Um, just the, the, the true sign of a, uh, of a novice interviewer, but, um, also, just the the challenge of trying to stay up individually, but maintain sort of team spirits along the way. Mm-hmm. So my first Olympics, the Beijing Olympics, I was actually in the quad, which is a sculling boat. So everybody in the boat has two oars. Um, but I had done sweep rowing at Michigan, which is where you only have one oar, which was my terrible experience on day one, getting hit in the back by the person behind me by a 12 foot long huge stick. Um, (laughs) and so I had done an Olympics as a scholar and in 2009, they decided to not have a sculling program. So everybody had to become a sweeper, which sort of transitioned three of the four of us from my sculling boat into now sweeping. So we were sort of vying for spots on the eight. Some of the people in the eight in London were also in the eight in Beijing. And so they had sort of continued along that. And we do most of our training in two person boats. So like same sport, but very different. Like you've gone from jazz to pop kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you're one's like really symmetrical and, you know, there's four blades on each side. So you have to make sure you're really in time, but you have one in each hand. So there's versus one side where you have a bit of a twist outwards there's yeah so it's similar but different like you coach them differently you learn them slightly differently but the basic mechanics of the stroke is the same um just changing the number of people but when we so when i started sweeping in 2009 getting in behind every port person so i rode on starboard side which is backwards from any other proper boater because they go forwards when we drive. Well, we actually go backwards when we row. So my starboard side is my left, which is everyone else's right. And so um, I, I was always getting in behind somebody else. And so their job was to steer the boat actually with their foot. Once I told them which direction we had to go, they use a rudder on their, with their shoe. Um, but I had to get in behind everybody take, you know, as few meters as I could to find their rhythm, figure out what their patterns were, figure out where they needed to, what they did well, what we needed to work on, what we needed to work on as the two of us. And so 
I really became a feeling rower and I would feel what the boat's doing. I could very easily row with my eyes closed um, to really zone in on what the boat was doing underneath me. I was never the strongest in the gym. I was never the fastest on the rowing machine. I, you know, didn't have huge power, but I was technically good and I could pick up any rhythm and feel what the boat was doing. So I would try to bring my attitude of let's do this together and let's be faster than every other boat on the water, regardless of who I was rowing with and what the workout was and bring that into all the other boats that I had. So in 2009, we rowed a lot in two person boats. Every stroke person to follow was so different. Their rhythm was different. It was hard to follow. It took me longer to pick up every change. Fast forward two or four years in 2012, I mean, all of our ports were rowing so similar. So you, the rhythm that we rode in the eight was the same that was rowed in the fours, which was the same that was rowed in the pairs. And whoever was stroking, it was only slightly different. So even in that sense of being a starboard and having to follow the person in front of you, it was like night and day in those, in those four years from where we started being totally different from each other to everybody rowing very much the same stroke. And the time it took or the adjustment that it took to get in smaller boats with people was much more effortless going into like the 2012 Olympics. So we knew the rhythm we wanted three of us or well, three of us had raced at the Beijing Olympics together in almost the same order. We were in, we were all three bunched together in the bow of the eight. And in 2010, we were the same except for two people from the 2012 Olympics. So we also had the benefit of having rode together and raced together at World Cups and World Championships for two years leading up to this Olympics. So we really knew what we were capable of and what we wanted out of that final race experience. Did that even answer your question? Where did, what did you ask? I don't know. <laughs> it was a great answer, whether you did or not. But I'm, I'm curious what so what does make a good teammate then? Yeah, I think I always tried, uh, well, teammate, friend, all of those things. Just for me, it was a lot around the language and a lot around the communication strategies. You know, you can row with people, which I did, who their calls, if I wasn't calling, which was rare, um, would be like, I need you to, or I, you know, I need this or I need that. And which didn't ever resonate very well with the other people in the, in the boat, because what they wanted to say was like, well, I need you to do this and whatever. So I was really careful with the language that I used surrounding what was going well. First of all, I always provided like positive feedback. If there was a change that I had called for, I told them that there was a change. I said, you know, like, yeah, and some exciting, aggressive voice, not like that. Not yeah, but like, just something to identify that, yes, that's what I asked for. And yes, the change just happened and it had a positive effect on our boat. And so there was that piece of it, but there was also just the language around how to make a change, right? It wasn't that they needed to do it. It was that we needed to do it together. So let's do this. Or, you know, I want us to think about, let's think about this. We can do this. And so I was really careful with the language that I used. And instead of talking down to someone or say, 
don't do this or not do this. And even as a coach, I, to this day, I do it now. I never tell them what not to do. I tell them what I want them to do. And so it takes away a lot of that extra stuff. If you're telling them what you don't want them to do, what, what do you want? Or, and so it just gets lost. And then instead of their brain focusing on the one thing I just told them to do, because I told them that let's think about our outside hand, whatever that means, the, you know, everybody's focus was on that. If we were holding the knees, everyone was focused on that. And so you could really feel a change. And if there was a positive change, you tell them. Everybody's going to get motivated by knowing that their change was what you asked for or that, and that we're doing it together. And so I did a lot of that. For me, it was a lot around language and being careful and being motivating to the other person and feel like you're empowering them and not talking down or belittling them and their efforts. Like, how did you make sure that you stayed in the mind frame to be that influence on other people? I can only imagine the training regimen that you're in. You're working, waking up at crazy hours. You're totally devoted to what you're doing. Well, being totally devoted to what you're doing, we didn't have to wake up at crazy hours because that was my job. I didn't have to like train in the morning and go to work like I coach now. <laughs> <laughs> so we had practice. I think it was like 7.30 actually is when we started. So we, seven. 7-Eleven and four? Well, it wasn't that long ago and I don't remember. So that's a good thing, right? Uh, but it was like in the seven o'clock hour, not in the five o'clock hour like I do now. So, but we spend so much time with these, with our teammates. And I wasn't always, you know, cheery and perfect every day. Uh, but I, I just tried to be and I tried to be the person that people wanted to row with. So when we showed up and our names were written on the board and what our combinations were for the day, I would rather people be excited about how the row could go with me instead of being disappointed before we even step foot in the boat, because you can feel that if someone, if someone has the attitude or the, or the negative energy surrounding them that they don't want to be there on that day, or they're not happy about who's in the boat or where they're placed or whatever. Like it just, everybody else can feel that energy and it just drags you right down with them. So those are the days that it's really hard to stay positive when someone else is not, and you're trying to somehow pull it out of them. And maybe you're that annoying voice on their, in the back of their mind, but sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't, but I just, I tried to put myself in a position that people were, at least not disappointed to be rowing with me. I don't know. Maybe I should call and ask if they ever were, but God, I have to row with Janine again. <laughs> hope she's not so positive back there in Bousy. Like, But I just think like, yeah, you just, I wanted to try and be that person and not someone they dreaded being with. I'm writing that down that I might, I think I'll put that on my whiteboard for the next couple of days. Perfect. Be, be the person that someone is uh, excited to get in the boat with. So Janine, you retired from uh, the athletic side of rowing and after the Olympics in 2012 and shortly after got married, correct? Yes. Six months later. <laughs> Started a family. 11 months after that, I had twins. It was the transition hard. Uh, I think I, I got lucky. So well, I shouldn't say I got lucky. I, I planned appropriately. How about that? <laughs> I, I had a lot, uh, planned. So we were, I planned to leave London, Ontario. That's where we were. That's where we were. I was engaged. So I knew that I wanted to 
my whole life I wanted to get married and have kids. And so that was sort of my next step. I had met the guy I wanted to spend the rest of my life with and I wanted to be in Winnipeg. I love Winnipeg. I'm still happy to be in Winnipeg. Um, I convinced him on our second date or at least asked him if he was at least open and willing to move to Winnipeg because if it if there wasn't even a willingness, I wasn't sure that there was going to be a date number three. And so he was, he was open to that, which is good. <laughs> I love that. I, I don't know how, how, how well that second date would go. Uh, I can only imagine. Yeah. Maybe at not least there was a willingness, right? At least he was open to the possibilities. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then I like I think that what really helped me was I had an opportunity working with liquor and lotteries and it was a new program that they had started called the impact team and I was at I did a lot of speaking on their behalf and what that allowed was for me to sort of I don't know review and talk about and think about all of my experiences and give speeches to people about, you know, going to the Olympics and what my opportunities were and, and all of that. So I think being able to reflect on the journey and like you say, just the amount of work that went into it, being able to share your story and talk about the journey and talk about the Olympics and just that Manitoba has actually sent more rowers to the summer olympics than any other sport and i don't know if that's still true but that was true at the time and so we actually have this incredible history of rowing in manitoba and still nobody knows that the rowing club exists 140 years later on the banks of the red river so pretty amazing for a place that uh, that the river is frozen yeah. six months out of the year and so just being able to share my story and share my journey with people i think was really beneficial in me through that transition. So yes, I had a wedding to plan and everything, but it was just neat going out to, I mean, I'd spent my summers either at the cottage or on the river when I was home after that. I had never been out to Nipawas Festival and Selkirk and like just all these places in and around Winnipeg that have all these amazing community festivals. So I got to spend my summer traveling the province and, or I guess the year, but mostly in the summers traveling the province and sharing my story and sharing my medal, which is in rough shape and dented and has been dragged on the cement by my daughter when she was two and a half and was just like raw around the edge. And still people are like, Oh wow, it's really been damaged. It's like, well, I let my kid drag it on the cement, not on purpose, but that's like, and so it, it really helped. I think just reflect on, the journey that I had. And I think that position was perfect for what it was. There's a bit of a theme here I, that I recognized in the last time we talked, but you, you're now uh, a coach all in on the coaching and development side, but like that was in no way a consideration no. for you, right? Like it, you I had been asked so many times if I was going to coach after having come off from the Olympics. And like I said, I was such a feeler in the boat. I, I wasn't, you know, I hadn't watched a lot of rowing. I'd seen races, like we watched stuff, but I didn't spend a lot of time watching rowing. So the amount of times I was asked, you know, if I wanted to coach, I just kept saying, no, I'll never coach. I'll never coach. And then the summer of 2016, I started rowing again, just to get some races in and just to row for fun, because I, I didn't leave the sport because I didn't enjoy the sport. I just left the sport because I didn't want to commit my whole life to it anymore. And I wanted to move on with life and opportunities and so I still was really passionate about rowing and I don't 
I don't need to be rowing at the highest level. I'm happy to go out in a boat with anybody. So I trained in this four with these three other ladies this one summer and sort of like over time, every once in a while, people would ask me if they, I could come out and do like a session and coach and watch them or and so I, one particular session that I just remember coming home from in the fall of 2016, and I was telling my husband about all these changes that these women had made and how excited I was. And I mean, he did not care at all about what I was saying and what I had changed or anything, but like the joy and excitement that I spoke with when I was telling him was what he recognized. And he, he was the one that said, you know, it's obvious that coaching brings you such joy. Why don't you pursue coaching? And it, I mean, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but my first comment was mums don't coach, which should not be said, but I think, you know, I didn't know a lot of women who are provincial coaches, especially in rowing where you're training before and after your kids are in school. Um, so there's, I just didn't want to go through not seeing my kids and um, and so that was kind of embarrassing that I said that, but here I am and I'm, I'm doing it and my kids are in school. <laughs> well, you know, I just, I think that's such a great, that's such a great lesson though. Like I, it'd be embarrassing now as you look back, but I was talking to someone about this yesterday that it's amazing the amount of barriers we put up before we even test out what's possible. Like in texting with your brother earlier this week, he just said, it's so amazing that Janine went to a karate class and someone said, Hey, you should check out rowing, you know, had that sequence of events not have happened. And you said, Hey, what the heck, let's try it. You know, at that point there could have been all sorts of beers. Same thing here. Like it, you want to be there in the morning for your kids, like all these reasons. It's just amazing what happens when you just say, well, what if I give it a shot? And I think the opportunity, it's funny because the opportunity that made me start rowing was going to Canada summer games. And then what got me into coaching was that, the provincial coach needed an assistant coach for the Canada summer games, which were the Winnipeg games in 2017. And I saw that as an opportunity, like if I'm going to coach and I'm going to try this, like, I mean, Canada games and they're in Winnipeg. So like it's a local game while well, it was in Kenora, the rowing was, but I mean, if I'm going to try it, this is kind of the year to do it where I see a window of opportunity that I can help. And it's a local games. And I had been, you know, excited about the games since, the conversations started, I remember in March, 2014, when it was like, oh my gosh, let's get the games to Winnipeg. And I attended this meeting from 8.30 to four with two month old twins. And I sat them on the floor and I was still nursing. So I'd be like leaving the room, getting one organized, coming back in. I'd come back in and some guy in a suit is on the floor, like rubbing Anna's back. I'm like, oh my God, they were being passed around all day. It was just like, okay, maybe I like, maybe I can do this, right? Like these people are incredible and the help that I was getting and just like, it was just such a, a community and, and it's, it's been like that for my kids ever since they go to regattas and I don't see them for most of the day because someone else is being helpful and looking after them as I'm dealing with crews and stuff. So it's just been, it's been the opposite of what I expected and that women can't do it. It's like, absolutely we can. And the amount of people who are willing to help you to be able to do that is like, I mean, it's, it's my village. It's amazing. Well, amen. I want to ask a few questions on the coaching side. I'm also mindful of time. It's uh, impossible for me to, uh, to have a conversation under an hour. So I apologize. Well, great. So 
when I we finished our our conversation last uh, last week, uh, our unrecorded conversation. I was thinking to myself that um, my Monday morning quarterback version of uh, psychology here is that like you were the Reggie Dunlop, uh, you know, he, that's a slap shot reference, I think, of rowing all the, like you've been a coach since, while in while an athlete in, in my mind from the stories that you told, which is no surprise to me in knowing you. And so that being said, you've had access through college programs, local program, local development programs through the Olympic programs to some of the best coaches in the world. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I can imagine that you've learned from some good ones and some bad ones and some in-between ones. So what did you draw from, from those people? And what do you bring into being a coach? A couple things. I think uh, making sure that you're coaching the athlete as a person, or I don't know whether it's in business or, or rowing, right? Like people are people first. And if people are in an environment where they feel safe, where they feel supported, where they feel um, unjudged isn't the right word, but like just where they feel comfortable um, is is the environment that you want to create, right? If you're trying to draw the absolute best out of people, they need to feel safe to fail. They need to feel safe to push themselves. They need to feel comfortable that, you know, that you'll be there for them. And I'm not a, I'm not a yeller. I don't, I don't yell at people unless I'm like yelling with a smile on my face because I see something I like, or I'm like banging on my motorboat along with them or something like, but I don't, I don't yell a lot at people. I I chant with them when I give them something to work on. Um, and uh, I also let them into the songs in my brain that are always going through as I'm watching them row. So I sing through the megaphone for them too. But I just think like bringing that element of fun, but also I, I've been where they are and I know the work that they're, that they're putting in. And so if I can create a space that's safe for them to put out their best effort every day, and if they can bring their best effort, um, then I think we'll be better. I also try and do it that you know, I have them set their goals because for me to want something more than, than they want to give, unless it's like, you should go to the Olympics in 12 years. And I, you know, actually did that, which nobody said to me at the time, but you know, if you're, if you're taking these steps and you you need to push someone a little bit more than what they think they're capable of, that's one thing, but I'm never going to put someone on a path you know, to train this amount of time in a day if they have no interest in doing it. So for my athletes, it's up to them. They're the ones that show up every day. And I just ask that when they show up, that every stroke they take is their best stroke or every part that they do is, is their best. And I, if they need reminders, I'll remind them that, you know, this little thing needs some work or this little thing needs some work, but I'm careful with my language. I'm, you know, I want it to be led by them. And I hope that I can create a communication, a, a comfort, uh, a, like a space for them to be able to, to bring their best self. How many athletes do you have at the rowing club that you're working with? Uh, I had 13 who were training with me this summer. I think I have 10 who are nine who are going through uh, winter training who didn't one just left for the national team, which is exciting. We get to watch her see if she goes to 2024 um, and then some went away to university on scholarships or otherwise. So, well, the the proof is in the pudding. You've had some amazing success since you've taken over as the coach. 
been really fun. I think just creating the environment that people want to be a part of is where it all started. So you create that environment. I can just picture it now, but you still have 13 individuals of varying ages. Like what, what does it look like to, to connect with each one? You've talked about helping each one of them set goals, but you know, I can imagine they come in with different commitment levels, but also different, different things that are going on in their lives. Yeah. Different everything. So I, I mean, in this summer it was, I had 14, no, she was 15 to 27 was my age gap this summer. So, um, and it is exactly that, you know, when you're 27 and you're rowing with someone who's 15, the 15 year old is going to feel pretty insecure and like not wanting to correct this person who's been rowing way longer. And, and I, I actually pulled this young girl aside and I said, you know, you're not in this training group because it's a fluke or something like you've, you've earned your spot to be here. You're working hard. You're moving the boat. Well, like this is an opportunity for you to talk in the boat, tell people how it's feeling, you know, and, and use your voice a little bit more. And she's done just that. I think sometimes just those one-on-one conversations, they don't know what I expect of them or they don't know what someone else is wanting from them. But if you can just pull them aside and it's perfect when they're rowing in singles, which is all we did because of Corona this year, we had singles and doubles and that's it is you can sometimes have those one-on-one conversations with athletes and just stop them and say, okay, you know, these things are going really well, but an area that you could really work on is being a voice in your boat. You know what it takes to move a boat. I see you doing it every day. You're doing it in the single, you're faster than people, you know, you're, and just sort of nudging people along, I think, and giving reminders in a way like these things are going well, but here's something to work on is, is, uh, I don't know. I, I do that as much as I can in various, for various people. And I'm always trying to watch the dynamics of things and just manage the group environment as best I can. I don't always, I don't notice everything, but I do notice more than I think they give me credit for at times. If there's something that I'm watching for or (laughs) like, but I, I think like the, the fun thing about the rowing club is you're not influenced by the person you were in high school or that you are at your high school. You're not with people from school. You're not with people from other sports. Rowing's new to everyone when they're coming in, whether you're 14 or 24 and you can just totally be yourself. And it's just like such a supportive environment for that. And I think people like that about it. There's no preconceived, there's no anything about it. You just come in as you and, We'll take you. That is such an interesting part of uh, some sports for sure that you can, it's this, it can be this safe place from whatever the day-to-day is. I, you know, you mentioned the impacts of the pandemic on things that you're doing. And I know that you've had to adjust quite a bit. We're in uh, code red lockdown here in Winnipeg. So how, like, what does it look like to support those athletes during this time? Yeah, so I do um, individual visits with them, check-ins with them, I guess, would be what it's called. Um, So I do a few of those, some more than others, just because I either know they want it or they um, need it or reach out, they reach out to me a little bit. Um, We're going to do some goal setting to go back to that and figure out what the next year is going to look like for a lot of them or four years if they want to look that far, but mainly sort of what they want out of this year, which then keeps them honest and me honest with that we're a on the same page with what I'm hoping to expect from them and what they want out of it. Uh, but we're just doing a lot of stuff on zoom. I think, um, 
I don't know when this red code red will end. I'm assuming we're not going to get into the rowing club for another six or eight weeks, but I'll be the fittest I've ever been because I run all these sessions on Zoom and do it right alongside with them. And I'm yelling at the screen and I got music going and I got the timers going. It's like all these things set up or we do, um, we do, we do some on the rowing machine. So I have the, my computer screen watching me and I'm sideways and I'm watching a projector on the wall so I can watch everybody else rowing. Um, so I provide whatever feedback to them as much as I can or see what I see overall and make some comments for people. So, I mean, we're doing the same as everyone else, just trying to stay fit and sane. And I think just doing it together is incredibly helpful because they can see each other. They can see their friends. We're all training at the same time. So there's that sort of social aspect of it. Um, but also just, I think people underestimate what a code red sort of does emotionally to us, like whether they notice it or not, it's, it's different. And I, I think just as a coach, just being mindful that everybody will be affected differently by what this feels like and what their environment is and their spaces and whether they're going to be training as much or as little as what works for them. But I think just recognizing that this time is crazy for everyone and everyone will have a difference of, of what their sort of best is at this time. So we just, I've been also very aware and on top of that, as much as I can, just assigning what I know people are able to complete and, and achieve with the goals of the workout and not causing more stress by giving them way more than they feel they can fit in in the day. So Janine, I, uh, Thank you so much for taking the time again. And I, I'm going to wrap this up right away, but I have one, I have, I guess one more question. And that is um, with these young athletes that you're, you're working with or your potentially your daughters, what advice would you pass along to them now that you've, you've had a, a decorated athletic career, you're a mom now, you're a coach, you're running this program. Um, yeah. What, what is the, what is the thing that you'd most like to share with that group? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm reading the book Grit by Angela Duckworth. And she also talks about it in there as, you know, well, she says, maybe not find something you're passionate about. But honestly, like I, I, I love what I'm doing now. And I loved what I did as an athlete. And it's the same sport, but my roles are really quite different. Uh, but just the, you know, I, I'm with people. I'm surrounded by people who are trying to do great things and, and I'm super lucky that way. So just, just sort of trying to find something that you enjoy doing is so important and getting up every day and, and going to work that makes you happy. And I mean, I get up at 440 in the summer, all summer long. And when we're on the water and the sun allows us to start by 530, I'm at the boathouse by just after five, getting things over done and you know, if I, if I didn't love what I was doing and, and hopefully the positive impact that I'm having on other people's lives and people who train with me and, and who I get to coach, then, you know, if I didn't have that, those opportunities, then I probably would not be happy getting up at 4:40 every morning <laughs> all summer long. So it's like, I, I think just finding something that you're passionate about just makes it so much easier to bring your whole self to the role and to, uh, to give it your very best all the time. 
Well, Janine, thank you uh, for, of course, being on the show, but uh, everything that you do in our community uh, for your athletes, you're, uh, you're, you're an inspiration. And uh, I uh, look forward to, to, to chatting again on, uh, uh, on a recorded version of uh, a future podcast. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks for having me. Thank you.